All right. Hey, uh, you saw those names up here on the screen. That's a lot of names, isn't it? Uh, and if you're new here, you're like, what have I gotten myself into? Uh, here's the good news about these names. These names are simply a reminder. How many of us need reminders? How many of you, if you haven't raised your hand there, how many of you set reminders on your phone during the week? Right? And you do that because you understand that if you don't set that reminder, odds are you're about to miss something really, really, really important. Uh, and you set, you may set two or three reminders. My wife has taught me how to use reminders on my phone that I never even knew existed. And as a matter of fact, when I was in college, my freshman year, uh, I thought I had set a reminder on my phone. I played football in a little college in East Texas, and we were going on an away trip to an away game. Uh, this away game happened to be in Oregon, and uh, it's a long way. Like, if I miss that flight, I'm not walking. And uh, it was, we had to get up at 4.30 in the morning to make sure we made our plane to get to uh, Salem, Portland area. And uh, 3.30, 4 o'clock rolls around, and uh, they're all getting ready, getting on the bus, and I am nowhere to be found. Uh, and I'm, I'm sitting and I'm, I'm in bed, I'm asleep. My uh, reminder didn't go off. And uh, I literally have a group of friends come and they start banging on my window. And I'm like, what are these people doing? And then uh, they wake me up and I look at my phone and say, oh no, I forgot to set a reminder. Okay. And if it wasn't for my friends who helped me get up and make it all the way to the field house to jump on that plane, uh, and I got to go to Oregon to play in that football game. And if uh, they wouldn't have, I'd have missed that flight. And I would have never been there. Uh, the, the same way, I hope that this sermon is a reminder for you. Your pastor banging on the window, making sure that you get up and uh, look at your reminder. And these names are a reminder because if you remember, uh, these names were there as the uh, Apostle Matthew was writing them uh, to a first century Israel to remind them of all the things that God has done and how God had promised to send a deliverer or a savior, a king, through this line and how that kind of happened and why that's important because he, this whole time in the Gospel of Matthew that we're jumping into, is trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the king, and therefore he had to come from the line of the kings, which is the line of David. And so throughout this sermon series, what we're doing is we are looking at how God's promises were given to people and how as God was faithful to his promises, how it changed the world forever. And that's what we're, we're looking at. We have to be reminded on ourselves. Because if we don't set reminders in our lives to look at texts like this, because as a matter of fact, when you read Matthew 1, you skip over this, don't you? Don't lie to me. Right? When you look at this, you skip right over the names, and you forget the reminder that they are, that failed king after failed king after failed leader after failed leader, uh, it took God intervening in time and space to create an opportunity for people to follow after the kind of king, the kind of leader that was necessary to lead us to God. And we're going to see this morning, although not name by name, we're going to see the general principles of how these kings failed and how they were not the king that would be Christ. They weren't the king who could lead their people appropriately, uh, but how we look at their lives and say, we ourselves can't lead ourselves properly. That we, as we look at these lists and look at these principles, realize that the same things the kings had dealt with uh, that led them to fail are the same things that you and I are prone to do every single day of our lives. 
And that's why this morning's reminder for us is so important, because if we do not take heed of our reminders, we are led to fail over and over and over again. Isn't that the case when you don't set your alarm every morning? You get up and say, oh, I failed again. I didn't get up on time. Uh, You you forgot to write down the grocery list. You go to the grocery store. You come back home, uh, and you look, and you say, I didn't get the milk again. I mean, every single time. You're prone to fail because you're not giving yourself over to the necessary reminders in your life. And I pray that this morning is a necessary reminder that as we look at Israel's royal genealogy, that it'll remind you that you need to rely on God's promises. That you need to rely on God's promises because those are the things that are faithful. Right? You and I, we, we think we're faithful. We want to be faithful. But when we get down to the bottom of it, we're not super faithful people. As a matter of fact, that's why we have the kind of promises, the Bible calls them covenants, in Scripture uh, that have nothing to do with you and me. Right? They're promises that God made to people. And they have nothing to do with us giving back to God promises to Him. Why did God do that? Because he knew we were going to fail. And so the only covenants that would never fail are the kind of covenants and promises that God only gave to us because he's faithful and he will fulfill all his promises. However, we're still called to be faithful to the Lord. We're still called to follow after God, even though that we do it imperfectly. And that's why this sermon this morning is going to be important for all of us to know how that works. So we're going to learn how to rely on God's promises It's going to help us properly worship him. Another issue that the kings had, all these kings that you just read off here, almost all of them, without exception, had a worship problem. They had an idol problem. They had things going on in their lives that kept them from following God the way that they ought to have. Uh, And it's also going to help us await, get this, our final vindication. And that may be a big word to you, uh, but uh, you may have questions like this. Why do I follow the Lord? Why do I need to be faithful to the Lord every day? Uh, he's not here. No one's ever seen God, right? Uh, you know, he said he's coming back, but he's not here yet. You know, why do I give to the church? You know, why, why, do, why am I even sitting in this room right now? You know, those kind of questions, in order for those questions to have really good answers, there has to be a final vindication or a reason why you're here. Why are you doing this? The text answers that, part, that question as well. And so this morning, my hope is that we answer all of those questions in a way that's helpful and useful for you as you are living your life in Christ. So uh, last thing in way of uh, introduction for you to know, throughout the history of uh, Israel, up until this point, we've dealt with one cohesive unit of people. There were 12 tribes, but it was one people, right? The, the Jacob, people of Jacob. Jacob's name was Israel. God named him Israel. And so there we have the 12 tribes of Israel. And they moved around in one unit throughout all the history up until this morning. So this morning, uh, you're going to see this, okay? Uh, last week, we saw that the kingdom was promised to split. So the kingdom of Israel is now starting today in our scripture, a divided kingdom. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Most of the time up to this point, or every time up to this point, when we talk about Israel, we're talking about the whole nation. But from where we're going to be in Second Kings and Chronicles and through the prophets, when they say Israel, they mean the northern kingdom. And you should write that in your notes because when you're studying the Bible, it's going to get real confusing if you don't know that when they say Israel from about Second Kings on throughout the prophets, they're talking about the northern kingdom. When they're talking about the southern kingdom, they call them Judah. And so Judah is the southern kingdom, and Israel, or Ephraim, you may hear it called Ephraim at times, is the northern kingdom of Israel. This is important because I'm about to cut off half of Israel's history right now because we're not talking about the northern kingdom today. And here's why we're not talking about the northern kingdom. The line of King David is the tribe of 
Judah. And Judah is which kingdom? Southern kingdom. So this morning, we're only talking about the southern kingdom. So we won't hear Israel. And if I do say Israel, I'm talking about the southern kingdom. Although in the text, when it says Israel, it's talking about the northern kingdom. But I'll do my best to only say Judah. Judah, southern kingdom. And you need to know this because for the rest of this genealogy, we're worried about one tribe, the tribe of Judah. We're worried about one line, and that is the line of David. And it's going to lead us to one king, and his name is King Jesus. And when you're in the text, you need to understand that. Uh, because if not, you're going to get really, really confused. We're always looking at the tribe of Judah in Scripture as they are the progenitor of the coming king of Christ. Okay, so as we're looking at, as we're looking at Scripture, we need to understand a couple things. Uh, in way of, uh, usually I try to go king by king or, or chapter by chapter. We're not doing that this morning. So I'm giving you a big overview. And with that being said, here's what you need to understand. Here are the big problems the kings had. Covenant faithlessness. You need to write that down on your note. Covenant faithfulness faithlessness, covenant faithlessness. Uh, they, their second problem was uh, improper worship. They did not worship God appropriately. And then the third is in line with that called idolatry. And so these are, are three things that we see uh, in the text that they had problems with. And that's the reason why the southern kingdom was taken over by Babylon uh, 587 BC. And so all of that, because of their covenant faithlessness, led to the exile of the southern kingdom to the nation of Babylon. And so here's, here's where you see it, First Chronicles 9.1. Uh, you can jot that down or at least follow along. First Chronicles 9.1 says this, So all Israel was recorded in the genealogies, and these were written in the book of the kings of Israel, and Judah, and Judah was put into exile by Babylon because of a breach of faith, because of their breach of faith. So you, could, you need to write that, a breach of faith. That's the reason this is all happening, because of Judah's breach of faith. They had a covenant made with God, and God and uh, Moses had gotten together on the mountain, they gave him the Ten Commandments, but he also gave him these promises that if you will follow me, I will bless you. If you will obey me, I will bless you. Uh, if you are careful to follow after my ways, I will honor you, and I'm going to make you a great nation, and all these great things are going to happen. But if you will not follow me, I'm going to curse you. I'm going to drive you out of the land that I have promised your forefathers. And so we see that happening as Israel's kings are not following after God. God is faithful to his promises. We've been talking about that over the last few weeks, that we like to think of God as faithful to all of his good promises, don't we? Like God promises uh, us to be in relationship with him through Christ. If we turn from our sins, place our trust in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We like those good promises, don't we? Because those are God's promises. But when we see the other side of the coin, the promises of God uh, that he will uh, exact perfect justice on the world and that will come through judgment in the last days, right? Those are things we don't want to talk about. We just want to talk about God's good promises. But you miss out on who God really is if you don't see the reason justice needs to happen. You don't see the reason why you must respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's a promise of the good things of God. But even God's justice is his promise that he will 100% follow through with at the right time. In the same way, Israel was so happy, and Judah in particular, was so glad to accept the good things from God, but they, they forgot the consequences, or at least ignored the consequences of God if they didn't follow him appropriately. And we see that in 1 Chronicles 9, because of their breach of faith. And it was that most of the kings of Judah 
would not follow God's word, and their breach of faith cut them off from God's blessings. Okay? You need to understand that the kings were cut off from the blessings of God through the Mosaic Covenant. Now, there is a caveat, however. Their faithlessness did not cut the world off from the Davidic promise. And that's important for you because I want you to pay attention here because this is where you can get messed up and you don't get excited about looking forward to Christ because you start getting all muddled down in these covenant promises. The covenant promise of Moses was a promise of you faithful, I'm faithful. The covenant to David was I'm faithful regardless what you do. The promise to David was, I will establish the line of the King David forever. We understand that no human can be on, a, be on the throne forever because the world's going to end. They even knew that back then. And so there had to be something spiritual. There had to be something supernatural about how the line was going to be established forever. And so we understand that the world didn't get cut off because the kings were being crazy, because the kings were being disobedient. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah 33 says it this way. Jeremiah 33 in verse 20 and 21, this says the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah is, is prophesying in the name of the Lord. He says this, if you can break my covenant with the day, and if you can break my covenant with the night, so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on this throne. So this is how supernatural the covenant of God given to David was. He said, if you can make the sun not set, and if you can make the moon not rise, then that's when the, the, the Davidic covenant, we can get rid of that. But until that day comes, there's always going to be a line of David. There's always going to be a king to sit on the throne of David. Now that's an important aspect of the Davidic covenant that we cannot absolve it. It cannot be taken away. It's a promise that God has set forth regardless of what the kings of Israel did. And there's reasoning for that, but you need to hold on to that. Because there were two types of covenants in the Old Testament, two particular types of covenants that we must, uh, we must nail down. And I want you to write them in your notes because this is going to change probably the way you study the Bible uh, for the rest of your life. Because a lot of you have uh, questions like, well, what about the law and the old, te- oh, the old covenant? Aren't we new covenant people? Right? Don't you have those questions in your life? Here's, real, here's uh, a partial answer to some of that. So write this down. There are two types of covenants in the Old Testament especially in ancient Near Eastern times. Uh, The first was called a bilateral covenant. You need to write that down, bilateral covenant. Bi meaning two. So there was a a certain covenant that God had given. The Mosaic covenant is an example of this, where it took two parties. And two parties made promises and commitments. Uh, Bilateral covenants sound a lot like this. If you will do this, then I will do this. If you don't do this, then I don't do this. Sounds a lot like a contract we get these days in Sinai, doesn't it? That's a bilateral covenant because you made an agreement with someone else, or in this case, biblically, God had made a promise to Israel. Israel had to give promises back to God that they would do what God had told them to do. And if they didn't, they would be cursed. If they did, they would be blessed. That is a bilateral covenant, and the Mosaic covenant is an example of that. Now, there is also, in Scripture, the other major covenant in the Old Testament. is called the unilateral. Uni meaning... One, uniform, right? Uniform, unilateral covenant, meaning one, one way. This finds itself in, in uh, language with one party saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, period. There is no other party having to say, well, I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this. It is simply God saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. It's a one-way covenant. There are two particular covenants that you need to know that are unilateral covenants. 
And the first one is simply the Davidic covenant. When God says, I will establish your throne forever. I will provide you heirs and offsprings forever on the line of David on the throne, period. Now that's the first most important one you need to know. And there's another one that we'll look at, and you can just write it in your notes. It's called the New Covenant. The New Covenant. And that's important, but before we get to the New Covenant, what what these unilateral covenants should do for you is help you do this, and it's point number one. It should help you fully trust in God's covenant promises. Point number one, fully trust God's covenant promises. Here's why. Uh, I have a hard time trusting contracts that are bilateral because I understand that I have a part to fulfill and you have a part to fulfill. And if any one of us breach that contract, what happens to, what happens to that covenant? Void. It's hard to trust bilateral covenants because there is a voiding of the contract when someone breaches faith. In the same way that we see in the Mosaic Covenant, when Israel breached faith, guess what happened? Covenant? No. Or at least God fulfilled his part of the covenant by cursing them and driving them out of the country they were in. I have a problem, and you should have a problem, with bilateral covenants because it requires you to hold up to something that you can never accomplish. Perfection. Complete faithfulness. Now, the reason that we can fully trust in God's covenant promises is because the two that apply to you and I specifically are called unilateral covenants. They have everything to do with God, and they have you only trusting that God is faithful to his promises. That's a, that's a covenant we can keep, isn't it? Those are promises that I'm down with because it depends on him. Now, turn you to at least this, uh, this scripture, Jeremiah 31. Turn to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 and 34. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet, and prophets are really important during this time because really up until this time, you don't really hear much about prophets in Israel's history because God had dealt with his people in different ways. And through the times of the kings, especially the divided kingdom, there were a lot of prophets who were the mouthpieces of God. And they would speak as God had had given them uh, revelation to give to the kings in Israel on what was about to happen to the northern and southern kingdom. And Jeremiah was one of these such prophets uh, during the time of the southern kingdom's last five kings. And so during the last five kings of the southern uh, kingdom, before they were exiled in 586 BC, you have the prophet Jeremiah. And you remember Jeremiah 29 11, don't you? You remember? What does it say? For I know plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to, not to, plans to give you a Okay, you know that one, don't you? Okay, Uh, this is the same line of thought. Just a couple of chapters later, he's talking about the same thing. But you need to understand that Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't talking about your plans to have a beautiful home with a picket fence around it, right? And three kids and a dog named Spot or Speckles, whatever one you want. Jeremiah 29, 11 was meant to point us to a coming Savior who is going to prosper. And as we trust in him and that covenant that he's going to make, that we too would have eternal prosperity in Christ, right? Not homes, cars, and and all those good things. That's not the promise of this covenant. Now, we see that covenant elaborated in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Read read along with me. I'll, I'll read you follow. Starting in verse 31. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There it is already. Like God already promised to send Christ. If you wonder, and this is, I, I say this as an aside, so many people don't trust in Christ because you think he just showed up 3 4 AD. You think he showed up in Bethlehem of Judea, right? It's like, and that's a lot of the arguments that even the Pharisees and people in Israel made. Like, how, how can I trust in that guy? He just showed up on the scene in a, in a space that nobody cares about in Bethlehem. But you see right here that God had promised hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on the scene, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. Well, that is the foreshadowing of the new covenant that's coming and Christ is initiating as the rightful king of Israel. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There you go. I'm going to make a new covenant, right? A unilateral covenant that's not the same as that old covenant that was bilateral. Because they're saying there that bilateral covenant was this. You broke it right there. It's not going to be like that old covenant that I made with your forefathers on Mount Sinai when I took you out of Egypt. This is going to be a different kind of covenant, right? This is going to be a new covenant. And here's that new covenant, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make. So you've already seen the unilateral concepts, right? I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to the unilateral themes. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Not they shall do something to be my people. Because I will be their God, they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Stop right there. The reason that in the old covenant of the Mosaic covenant, they had to always remind each other, you need to know the Lord. You need to remember the Lord. Remember all these commandments. You must follow them because if you obey them, God's going to bless us. If you don't obey them, God's going to curse us. And so they continually had to teach his neighbor and each his brother, know the Lord, know the commandments, know the commandments, because if we breach these, God's going to be faithful to the other part of these, his covenant, which is not good news for you and me. But he's saying, but with this new one, declares the Lord, you don't have to do that, because here's what's going to happen. Far be it for me that I'm going to punish people, I'm going to punish because of my bilateral commitments. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do this, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, what you and I get to add to a unilateral covenant is our sin. Here's what you and I, if you want to say, well, what part do I have in salvation? The sin, that's what part you have in salvation, right? That you provided a necessary necessity to be saved. That's what you add when it comes to the new covenant. What God gives is forgiveness for your iniquity, and he will remember your sin no more. That's called the new covenant. You see the new covenant in the Old Testament, This isn't something that man created or that the apostles created. All they were doing was reading the Old Testament, listening to the Messiah who showed up, and telling them, hey, this is how all this connects, and all they did was write it down. And what they had seen was in Jeremiah 31 that the new covenant has been initiated and installed in the coming King, Jesus Christ. And he will forgive their iniquity, and he will remember your sin no more. You see, you can fully trust in God's covenant promises simply because this, you don't add anything to it, right? It's not dependent upon you. It's dependent on him. And just as he was faithful at the fullness of time to send his son, right, in the likeness of sinful flesh to be our 
substitute. We know because God's faithful to his one-sided promises. It's about his faithfulness. It's about his commitment, not our failures in commitments like like the kings dealt with over and over again, like Israel dealt with over and over again. And the new covenant for you and me is simply this, that we trust in Christ as our king, that we trust in Christ as the substitute for our sin, that he imputes upon us his righteousness and we have imputed upon him our sin. That's the new covenant. And if anyone would would turn from their sin, they would place their, their trust in Christ, they shall be saved. Exactly what Luke 24 says. Jesus said, I have come that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins might be proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Well, why did it have to begin in Jerusalem? It had to begin where God began his promise-keeping covenants with his people. And he says, it will begin here, but it's not going to end here. It's going to go to all the nations. And as we study the book of Matthew, you're going to see that over and over again, the concept of all nations, all nations, all nations. You even see names in this genealogy that, had, that, were, that weren't. They were Gentiles. They weren't even of the nation of Israel. But God had grafted them in the same way that he grafts in all the nations who would repent from their sins and trust in him. That's why you can fully trust in God's covenant promise. But you can also trust in the other side of that promise too. Just like Israel in that bilateral covenant, understood that if they didn't follow God's obedience, that they would be exiled from the presence of God. In the same way, in the unilateral covenant that we have, all we do is trust in Him. All we do is forsake sin and follow Him. But the other half of that promise that is also unilateral is that anyone who doesn't trust in the promise of God will also be subjected to the justice of God. Because sin still remains, you've not been imputed any righteousness. You haven't been given justification in Christ. And so what is left for you is still the justice of God. Right? And you ask, well, why? You said it's unilateral. Well, that means that I don't, have to, I don't have to do anything. Well, that would not be a loving and just God, would it? A loving God would never leave sin unaccounted for. A loving, just God would never leave sin, would never leave murder, Right? would never leave any crime committed without perfect justice. And so to have a loving, just, perfect God, something has to happen with sin. And there will be a consequence for sin. There will be a reckoning for sin. But the good news in the new covenant is simply this. You don't have to work for your salvation. You don't have to work for the justification in Christ. You simply turn away from the work that you were doing, which is idolatry, greed, lust, sin. You just turn from that. That's what the word repentance means. And you trust in Christ's work. You see that. That's the importance of the new covenant that is a unilateral covenant. Yes, and of course, right? if you don't turn from your sin, which if you call that a work, I don't know if we have the same definition of work. And if you call trusting in Christ a work that merits your salvation, you don't understand what trust means. Right? You didn't build the chair you're sitting in. You trusted that it was going to hold you up. It's the same thing with the new covenant of Christ. You didn't build it. You didn't do it. All you're doing is turn away from standing up and sitting down and trusting in him. Amen? All right, that's the unilateral covenant that we can fully trust in with God. Come on. All right. Another issue the kings were given to, like us, they were, they were prone to idolatry. And all idolatry is is simply this, worshiping things around them. And I know worship sounds archaic, 
but simply worship is this. You spend a time, money, and attention on something other than God, over and above God. And this, you need to really pay attention here. I know that all this has applied to you so far. This will apply to every soul that exists because every one of us are separated from God because we loved something more than Him. So every single one of us have something in way of application in this part of the sermon. The kings forsook God in pursuit of other pleasures. Didn't, didn't we read about that last week? You see that over and over again, recapitulating throughout this entire text from 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles all the way through the prophets, that the kings, all they did was focus on them. Like even the ones who for a little while doing good things, at the end of the day, they didn't trust in God. And the ones who did, or even the ones who did a lot of good things, like think of like King Asa, right? Uh, King Josiah, they said that even though they did some good things and they restored some of the worship back in Israel, even they were passive to tolerate other idols that were in the land. God's promise was you need to get rid of all these idols. His, his commitment was like, you, you rid this nation of idols. There is one God in the nation of Israel, and I shall reign alone, uncontended in the nation of Israel. But even those good kings that we would call them would tolerate idol worship, and they wouldn't remove it from the, from the nation. And often, uh, this resulted in a lot of practical, uh, practical sins, practical issues, uh, something like this, like the northern kingdom of Israel, because they hated the southern kingdom, that's why they split, they, instead of worshiping where and how God told them to in Jerusalem, they set up their own worship in the northern kingdom. Now, this is important because simply this, people often think because I'm doing something in the name of God means that that is something that God would accept and something that God would commend. But here's a great example of these northern kings who set up worship in the northern kingdom, and when it come down to it, it was never about God. It was about the kings of the north not wanting their people to go down to the south. It was actually idolatry because they were making it about them and not about what God's word had said. And in so many ways, you can even come to church here on Sundays because you know that it's something you should do, but as a matter of fact, your heart's not in it. Your mind's not in it. I mean, you can be playing with idols all week long, and then because culture tells you that it's 11 o'clock on Sunday, you put them down, you wipe, you wipe off your hands, and you walk into church for a couple of hours, and you say, I love God. Like the northern kingdom, you love God, right? You make it look like you love God, but when it comes down to it, the week is for you, and you think giving God an hour and a two of your life is going to make things all equal between you and God. You think about bilateral covenants a lot more. God, I'd give you two hours, and then we're good. That's bilateral thinking. We're unilateral people. Right? We believe that it's, it's God. And my faithfulness to God is an outpouring of the Spirit's work in my life to love Him. I work for God 100%, but I do it out of the overflow of the love that I have for Him, not out of the uh, desire for Him to do something good for me because I'm, I'm holding up my side of the bargain here. Now, that aside, the kings did this. They made other areas of worship God didn't accept. Uh, another thing that they did in that time, remember God said, you need to drive all the nations out. This is your land that I have given to you. Drive all the other nations out. Well, we remember that they didn't drive all the nations out. You know, they drove a lot of them out. They drove most of them out, but then they kind of got lackadaisical. They kind of stopped really working on conquering the whole land. And on the peripheries of the land, they were still dealing with a lot of foreign nations. And guess what foreign nations do? 
they bring in foreign gods. And so now you have these foreign gods that are now all through the life and the worship of Israel. God says, I don't accept, I don't tolerate, I don't, I don't tolerate idol worship. And what else? Marrying women of pagan backgrounds. This is something that Solomon got condemned for, wasn't it? It's not a prohibition against women at all. It's a prohibition against idols. It's uh, simply this. Uh, Solomon and other kings, uh, they would make pacts and they would make uh, covenants or uh, treaties with other, other countries. And those would, uh, kings of those countries would give you one of their daughters and say, this is our, this is our uh, signed agreement. I give you one of my I give you one of my daughters. She'll be a princess, a queen there in Israel. And so then you see all these other nations and having influence on Israel. Do you see that? On influence on the worship of Israel. And you know, because you're married, uh, when you're in a spousal conflict and, uh, you know, Solomon or one of the other kings were, you know, arguing with his wife and the wife said, you know, if you really love me, you'll let me worship that thing over there. That thing that I grew up with, that idol over there, you're going to let me bring that in the house, right? 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 Because if you love me, you're going to let me do it, right? And then, you know, his, the other wife that he made with the treaty of the king of Egypt. Uh, hey, honey, uh, when I was in Egypt, they let me worship this God. This is the one we had in our house every day. You've got to let me move it in, right? I mean, this is my piece of furniture, right? This is your, your, your kingdom, your palace, but I need to move some of my furniture in. Can I have this? No, that's an idol. Honey, do you really want to get into this right now? You're right. I'm not going to get into this. All right, put it in, right? You see the point, right? Over and over and over again, because they married uh, these, the foreign women that were worshiping idols, right? Pagan women, the idol, idol worship uh, was proliferated all over, all over Israel. Uh, and that led also to building of uh, pagan temples of worship. So in this nation that God had given them and said, I've given you this place, it's yours. They then had replaced God with all things they made with their hands all things that they could work for, that bilat. They wanted to set the terms. They wanted to worship what they did and not worship the God of creation. As a matter of fact, that's what Isaiah 2, 7 through 8 says. Isaiah, it was a prophet during that time, and he was calling them out for this exact thing. He said this, your land is filled with silver and gold. Isn't that a problem to have? You know, you're just like raking through silver and gold in your land because you have too much. Um, their land was filled with silver and gold, and there was no end to their treasure. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Does that, does that remind you of last week's sermon? Right? The, uh, the warning that God gave to the kings of Israel was, don't have excess gold and silver. Don't have excess horses and chariots. Why? Because horses and chariots were the, the instruments used for war, and so that means that the kings were putting their trust in their armies and not God's. Excess gold and silver told the, showed that the kings trusted in their own wealth and not God's. Hmm. And them trusting in who they voted for midterm elections had a lot more to do with who they trusted in to make their policies rather than the God of the universe who puts people in office and takes people out of offices. Or was that just us, not in the Bible? You know what I'm saying? You hear me? Okay. All we're saying is this, you and I have, are prone to idolatry just as much as they were. And we've got to make sure that, all, it's, it's a unilateral covenant, I, I get it. That's the reason that when you do worship something else, God doesn't strike you down. Grace and mercy of God, amen? Right? That is the beauty of a unilateral covenant. 
But far be it for me to have my hands in the mud when Christ comes and gets me and I'm, and I'm muddy playing with idols when the God of the universe puts me face to face with him. Like that's why the fear and the honor of the Lord is so important in a unilateral covenant for me. Because I can't stand up here as a pastor and tell you if you don't do this, God's not going to do that. God already did what he was going to do. God already gave us the new covenant in Christ. But he tells us over and over again that if we would just be faithful to him, if we would trust in him, he'll make our pathway straight. All right? He's not going to smite you. Right? And, and believe me, pastors like me and people who have similar theological convictions as I do hate these kind of sermons because there's no, like, there's no hook that keeps you, that keeps you under control right? other than the love of Christ compels you. The reality is anyone who is in the new covenant, who trusts in Christ, are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they're not going to be given over to idols. They're not going to be people who are pursuing other things because your great desire is to please the one who saved you. That's why idol worship is so important because all idol worship is is simply me pursuing the thing that my heart is attached to. And that's why it's important that you do this, and it's point number two on your outline. You need to eliminate idols in your life. You need to eliminate them. As a Christian, it's so important to eliminate idols. And here's why. Uh, you're programmed to worship. Like you need to, you need to understand, you as a human being were created to worship. I mean, that was the whole reasoning God had created all of the world, all of the universe. And that's the reason Jesus, uh, I mean, when, uh, when Jesus is talking and uh, he's talking to the people and, and talks about worship. He's like, Listen, if you don't worship, the rocks are going to cry out and worship. Right? All of creation, you read in the Psalms, the heavens sing the glories of God. All creation is meant to worship. And that includes you and me. Now, this is the big reason that we call people to repentance. So we call people to trust in Christ. And we call people to eliminate idols. Because the, here's the fact. The fact is, before you became a Christian, you worshipped a lot of idols. And even when you're a Christian, if you're not eliminating them, you're still prone to go after them. And so that's why sermons like this are so important to look at you and say, listen, the king's dealt with it. The patriarchs dealt with it. Adam and Eve dealt with it. Right? We, we didn't skip over that because of the new covenant. The reality is, is we need a new covenant because you and I continually fail over and over and over and over and over again. And it's important to have sermons like this where they say you've got to eliminate idols because you're programmed to worship. And if you're not programming your life, keeping in step with the Spirit, if you're not programming your life to be a part of corporate worship, to be in community with one another, that's why we talk about life groups every single week. Right? If you're not programming your mind and your heart using the words of God in, his, in the Bible, you're not doing those things, you're going to be programmed to pursue other things because when you watch TV and your inner inclinations, you see other people have things, you're going to immediately want the things that the world has. And I stepped on a lot of toes at the nine, and I'm not going to spare yours. The simple fact of the matter is that you are led to worship everything around you. And one of the biggest idols in all of our lives are some of the littlest things we have in our home called children. You know what I'm saying? All right, I have one coming in November. And the first thing I'm going to say is, like, you better stay away, you little idol. No. I mean, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love, I love my son already. But that's the point, isn't it? And, and here's one of my, my biggest rationales of why children are our biggest idols. It's not because, it's kind of like the northern kingdom, right? You think you're doing a good thing, and everyone can't really say anything because it looks like you're worshiping God. But truly, you're worshiping your own image. Right? Because when you have kids, they're half of you, and they're half your spouse. And so, so often, you're so caught up in that child, not because you love that child, but because you love yourself. 
And you have got to be so careful when you're raising your children that you're raising them for the Lord and not for yourself. You know, because I tell you, we're all going to do it. We're all prone to do it. The minute that my child shows an athletic bone in his body, he's signing up for the NFL, right? (laughs) Because it's about me, right? Because it's about me. Look at my boy. That's my boy. You know, you see what I'm saying? And you are so prone to do that yourself. The minute your child shows interest in something that you're interested in, the minute that your child asks to do something and you got to take a couple of things out of your life, I can't go to church that Sunday. I can't go to life group this week. can't go to life group next week because my child's got all of these passions and all these desires. And who am I to take those desires? You are their parent who are supposed to take desires that aren't pleasing to God away from your children. You know what I'm saying? All right. And I'm, I'm telling you, and, and this isn't just about your kids. We can, we can go anywhere with this, right? I can look at your bank account. I can look at what's in your shopping cart, everything. I'm just saying those things that you make with your hands and yourselves. All those things become idols in your life, and you can tell people you're serving God, but your heart is far from Him. Your affections are so far from God, and you can project onto things in this world as if you are worshiping God, but you know you're not worshiping God. God knows you're not worshiping God, and honestly, people with wisdom and discernment of God and spiritual things know you're not worshiping God. You just have a pastor here who's okay with telling you. We got to eliminate them. As Jesus says it clearly in Luke 16, no one can serve two masters. The reality is we all are going to serve a master. We are. We are all mastered by something. And that's the hard part. Everyone says, I'm mastered by none. Yes, you are. I mean, your, your affections master you every single day, don't they? I mean, your, your desires rule over you every single day. That's why the new covenant matters, because I have a new king. I have a new ruler, and his name is Christ. And let him rule over me as a perfect, just king. And that perfect just king tells me things like this. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. The reality simply is this. You're either going to love God or you're going to despise God. You're either going to be devoted to God or you're going to be devoted to the other. And that's why we can easily look at people's lives and say, are you devoted to God? Because there is no like 50-50. I can't be 50% devoted over here and 50% devoted over here. I'm either devoted to one or the other. I either love one or love the other. And it it gives you the actual uh, topic in Luke 16, 13. You can't serve God and money. right? So, I mean, if your whole life is even just this, this small context, not apart from your children... If you're going after money all the time, and that's, and that's your goal, right? I want to be as rich as I can. I want to have what I need uh, over God. Like it's, it's, it's easy to tell when you look at someone's life whether or not they serve God or they serve money. Here's my caveat, however, is simply this. When it comes to your children, precious children, the Bible says so many great things about children, doesn't it? Uh, the Bible also says a lot of good things about how we use money. Because here's the simple principle of idolatry. You have a throne on your heart. Every one of us does. And that throne is meant to have one person sitting in it, and his name is God. Idolatry is simply this. When that throne that has been programmed into you does not have God sitting on it, and it has something else around it that's supposed to give glory to God, and it's supposed to point people to God, and it's supposed to help define your relationship with God in practical areas, when those things become what's on the throne, that's called an idol. 
And that idol will rear its ugly head because it will dictate your decisions. It will dictate your motivations and your passions and desire and your bank account. Come on. You know what I'm saying? And here's what I mean by that. You have God on the throne. All right, we're going to sit with that. Your children become a great asset. Your children become a way for you to train up disciples in your own home. They become an opportunity for you, like uh, the Psalms say, to, to shoot arrows out into the world. Your marriage, right? When your marriage is not on the throne of your life, but it is in subjection to the God on the throne. Uh, I do what Ephesians says. I do what Colossians says. Uh, husbands, you, you love your wives like Christ loved the church. Right? You give yourself up for your bride. You sacrificially provide for your bride. You consider her more significant than yourself. Right? When God's on the throne, wives... We submit to our husbands as to the Lord. We honor our husbands. Not something we like to talk about in culture, is it? But that's because culture's on the throne and not God. Because when God's on the throne, my idols are no longer idols. Those things that were idols are now, if they are patterned by God in our lives, like marriage and kids, they become subject to God, which every area in our life should be subject to God. That's the beautiful thing about God on the throne. It points every single thing else in its right place. And then your marriage is impacted for the glory of God. Your children are being raised for the glory of God. Your church is doing ministry for the glory of God. We can keep going. Your job is providing a means for you to care for your family, to build up the local church for the glory of God. You see all those things. But it only works when they're not idols. It only works when we take them off of the throne of our lives and we put God where he belongs. And here's the, here's, the, here's the cliffhanger for the whole thing. God never got off the throne. You just never acknowledged him being on the throne. And that's why your life's not working out. Right? And you can call, that, that's just as unilateral as the new covenant. You understand that God's promise is he's always on the throne. The fact that you're not acknowledging God on the throne doesn't change the fact that God's on the throne. What he's asked us to do is follow the king of kings who's on the throne, subject our whole lives to his authority, to his kingship, and then we'll eliminate idols in our lives. And here's, and here's what it is. When it comes to idols, and we got to ask, you know, there's practical things we can do, and you go to your life groups, you go to, you go to all your men's groups, your women's groups, you're going to learn all, all, all the practical ways you can do that. Uh, but there's something simple you can do that's found in the text of Scripture that teaches us how we can flee from idolatry by focusing on something in particular, and it's God's promises. Right? Focusing on God's promises, particularly his future promises, is going to help us not focus so much on the here and now. Uh, there was a study done. I'm a communications major, and I had to learn all about studies of communication theory uh, throughout my education. And one was called the marshmallow experiment. And the marshmallow experiment was simply this. They put a bunch of kids in a room. Or maybe one at a time. They put one kid in the room at a time, and they gave, put a marshmallow in front of them. And they said, if you won't eat that marshmallow, I'll be back in five minutes, and I'll give you two. And uh, you, you, can, you already know what happens, don't you? Uh, for the most part, the kids could not wait five minutes to have the glory of two marshmallows because they didn't have enough self-control and anticipate what was coming. But those that did... After five minutes, they had their hands behind their back because that's practical obedience. And uh, they walk in and he said, you didn't eat the one marshmallow. Here's two. Okay. In the same way, our lives as Christians work, work in the same way. Simply this, you can have all these things in your life that you want right now. 
Go after it. Solomon actually said that last week, didn't he? Go after everything you want. Just know there's coming a day where there's going to be a reckoning for all the things that you've done. By all means, go do all the things you want. But there's coming a day where you will answer for every single thing that you've done in the presence of God. Smiley face. So, what does that mean for us? We can focus on what we have in front of us, which often leads to idolatry. Or we can look to the promises of Scripture and say, well, what is coming? Not, not only what is coming, what has already happened? We've been sealed, right? We've had a down payment, Scripture calls it, through the Spirit. Your life has changed. You're bearing good fruit, things that you could never do before. And you understand that there's already been a change in your life. There's more to come. And so if you're going to grab to any marshmallow... You need to be grabbing onto the one you already have. As a matter of fact, Israel could do the same thing in in a lesser way that leads to the culmination of the Davidic promise is even during the fall of the northern and southern kingdoms, particularly the southern kingdom, the prophets still told them, listen, you done messed up. Things are not going to go well for you, but there's still hope. And here's the hope. Isaiah 6, he's he's in the presence of God. God commissions him to go be his mouthpiece uh, and he says, here's what you're going to go tell Judah. You're going to, these people are going to keep hearing, but they're not going to understand. They're going to keep seeing, but they're not going to perceive. And he says, you're going to make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they with their eyes see the Lord and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn to be healed. Then Isaiah said, well, how long am I going to do this, God? And God says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and until houses are without people and the land is a desolate waste. That's the, the prophecy of the future exile of the southern kingdom to, Babel, to Babylon. So that's really, this hasn't even happened yet, and he's already articulating exactly what's going to happen. Uh, and he says in verse 13, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. He said, you think it's going to get bad there in the southern kingdom? It's going to get worse. But he says, like a terebinth or an oak, like a tree, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. God's saying, listen, I'm cutting this nation down. But even what's left at the roots, I'm going to grow the king of kings. From that genealogy, which is what we're talking about, that holy seed, that stump he's talking about is the genealogy. The stump is Matthew 1, 1 through 17. He says, out of that stump... I will spare and preserve the line of David. And as a matter of fact, you see that not only in the coming of Christ, but you have to ask, well, who was spared? In what way was the king, was the king spared? Because they're gone. They've been taken into captivity. Well, well, listen to this. And if you know anything about history, you'll find the miraculous nature of what happens to King Jehoiachin in, in Judah. Uh, the Babylonian kings take over Judah. In 2 Kings 25, you see the culmination of that. And then King Jehoiachin is taken captive and put in prison for 30 years. What usually happens to kings who get put in prison for long periods of time in places that have been conquered? Right? You know that. But listen to what happens to King Jehoiachin. So, after 30 years, the king graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. Huh, just a king that had a lot of animosity toward his kingdom before, he's just now let free. Now listen to this. That's not, it didn't just end there. And he spoke kindly to him. And he gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Do you see this? This is, this is the great-great-great-grandson of David and the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa of Jesus. 
And somehow God has planted this seed in Babylon where it was supposedly supposed to die, and now it is flourishing. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. So you see a devastated nation that would not follow God who broke their covenant promise with God. And you see God, who over here has a, has a smoldering stump, the Scripture teaches. And in that smoldering stump, He takes that stump, it's planted firmly in Babylon, of a, of a nation that hates God. And yet God is preserving the seed of David, even when, in the midst of the enemy. And that line is how we get to Jesus Christ. See, that, that's the hope and the prophecy that was spoken before it even happened, that was the prophecy that was spoken. And Israel was able to see their vindication from afar. They were able to see that even though we failed, your promise is still there. And although we're not in it yet, we see that it's coming. You see, that's why it's important for you and I, and it's point number three on your outline, to patiently await your vindication. Even, I get it, maybe your life's a wreck, maybe you have been redeemed, but you've trusted in Christ, you've turned from your sins, and you live in a moment now where, where you are saved, but yet you've made your life a wreck up until this point. Great. Patiently await your vindication. Patiently await the coming of Christ, because the reality is, is Christ is going to vindicate all of his people who are living for him in the here and now. You see, because in many ways, we are just like Israel we're Christians living in exile. That's what First Peter teaches, I believe, isn't it? That we're the exiles of the earth because you and I, we have no nation. Right? We, have no, we have no home. We're a people who have kingdom outposts in, in cities like this where we're gathering. This is God's nation, God's people who are gathered here. We are exiles. The, the government doesn't do what you want it to do, does it? The people in our community doesn't do what you want it to do, does it? The schools don't teach your children the way you want them to do it. Do it? Does it? right? Because you're an exile. Why would a nation, why would a people group do things that exiles want when you're an exile? That's the point of why we await our final vindication. Because there's a time coming, and Micah speaks of it, Micah 7, 9. Micah is another southern kingdom prophet who both foretold the judgment of Judah, the judgment of them, but also promised a future vindication, a vindication that didn't happen yet. And this is what Micah says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. But listen to this. He will bear me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. The prophet Micah says, we're in judgment now. The whole world, as a matter of fact, is in an eschatological judgment. But there is coming a time as we sit here faithful to the Lord that our eyes will look and we will see the vindication of the Lord. That's why we live faithful to the Lord. This is why we flee from idolatry. This is why we, we kill sin and we free ourselves from any sin that entangles us in our lives because we are simply patiently awaiting our vindication. There's coming a time where we shall look upon the vindication of God. If that doesn't, that doesn't prick you, I mean, just realize this. This is why people ask, well, why do you guys go to church? Right? If God's so free and loving and lets you... You kind of get away with things. Why are you going to church? It's a good question if you don't understand the vindication of the Lord, isn't it? Why do you guys not just do whatever you want to do? There's a lot of good things to be doing when it's 80 degrees and sunny outside. Uh, why, do you guys, why do you guys give to the church? 
Why does your marriage look like that? Why, why do we see husbands sacrificially loving wives? Why do we see wives submitting out of honor to their husbands? Why do we see that? Why do we got we to do that? I mean, I know you don't want to do that, and you don't want to do that either. Well, why are you doing it? Because we're awaiting the vindication of the Lord. There are so many things that you and I are committed to doing right now because we understand that there's coming a time where there's going to be another marshmallow. Okay? There's coming a time where what people see in front of them isn't all that's there. And that's what the world is, is hoping, that all that happens is the marshmallow in front of me. The world is just holding on to what's in front of them, not understanding that there's vindication coming. And when it comes from behind them, they're going to realize, oh man, there's so much more to this than just this marshmallow that I'm holding on to right now. And in the same way, they're going to hope that there is no vindication. Because if that's the case, they're vindicated. Do you understand that? If there's nothing after this, they're vindicated. If there's something after this, we're vindicated. Because I don't live for my own desires and my own passions and my own lusts. I live for the Lord because I'm patiently awaiting my vindication. So another reason why I don't get in every argument on Facebook and whatnot, right? Because I don't need to be vindicated right here and right now. I mean, people can say things. That pastor over there, he really is very just tells, talks about judgment and sin and justice and righteousness all the time. I don't have to be vindicated right here because there is going to be a time where the judgment and righteousness and justice of God is going to reign. And so that's going to be my vindication. I'll just do exactly what Micah is saying. I look up and there's his vindication. That's how the real freedom in the Christian life happens when you understand that you have a coming vindication. You have to vindicate everything in your life right here and right now because it all will be vindicated. Just like the kings, although they were in exile, they looked forward to a vindication. And you and I as Christians, we sit in exile even now, awaiting our own vindication. Let's pray. God, I pray that this sermon just hits the nail on the head. God, it hits the target and it helps us rethink and recategorize what we're doing here. God, that we can see that your promises, as they're laid out in Scripture, Give us a, a solid foundation to rest our faith and our trust that there is a covenant between, between you and people who would turn from their sins and place their trust in you, a God that doesn't uh, have in its parameters a give and take. It doesn't have a, I have to earn this salvation. I have to earn a right standing before you, but that standing has already been paid for with the righteousness of Christ, with, with his life, not mine. And God, our only response to such a beautiful, such a gracious covenant is that we would drop what we were going after and trust in you. That we would turn away from those things and we would place our trust in, in you. And God, in that same trust and that same love, that same adoration that we have in, in, our, in that covenant relationship, that it would lead us to such love that, help, that sees us a great need to flee from idols to remove them and eliminate them from our lives. And I just pray, God, that that would be the case, that we'd be a church that eliminates all the idols, that there would be nothing uh, in our lives that, that competes with the glory in, in your majesty, even in our own minds, God, as we come to the reality that nothing created is worth comparing to the great creator of the universe. And God, all these things, I pray, that we will see even now as we are awaiting our vindication, they'll be worth it in the end. They'll be worth it at the time to come. That there is a time coming where we'll be vindicated of why that we killed the idols in our lives. Why we trusted in your promises. God, why we've committed to community of Christ. Why we are, are, are generous in our time and our finances and our lives. Because there's a time coming where all of that will make sense. So much sense as we await your coming and your return. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.